Welcome to Subspace Radio. I'm Kevin Yank. And I am Rob Lloyd. Each week there's a new episode of Star Trek on, at least. We're looking at that new episode. And finding what wormholes will lead us into Star Trek lore and history and mythology to explore. Wormholes. Perfect. Wormholes. I see. And we're entering a quadrant filled with many white men in their 30s slash 40s talking about this thing. And why not we join the party as well? Why not? Why not? <laughs> Get on in, the water's warm. Exactly. <laughs> um, if you're curious who we are and how we relate to Star Trek, stick around at the end. We won't talk about ourselves till the end. We know you're here for the Trek, so we're going to start with that. If you get to the end of this and you're like, actually, I enjoyed that. I wonder who these two dudes are. We'll compare our Star Trek credentials and talk about our histories with the franchise at the end. Excellent. Because here at Subspace Radio, we're all about Trekker, no filler. This week, our focus is on Season 1, Episode 9 of Strange New Worlds, All Those Who Wander. We've only got one more episode to go, and where do we go after an episode like that, yeah. Kevin? Whew. Whew. I needed a breather after that one. It snuck up on me. I didn't expect it to go to the places it did and to hit the emotions as hard as it did by the end as well. I was kicking myself that I didn't see it coming. But exactly. uh, yeah, it was a horror episode, arguably the most horror episode that Star Trek has ever done. Especially in this new this new era of Star oh, Trek. Oh, definitely. Yeah. yeah. And it's the first time that Strange New Worlds has sort of like leaned into. I mean, some of Discovery had a little bit of, uh, especially in the Mirrorverse episode arc of season one, yeah. was quite violent and a bit mm. gory in some way shape or form especially with the klingons and the sort of like the body morph stuff in there very oh, yeah. very cronenberg so there were elements of that but really in a pure science fiction manner but i didn't think it was overdone i think it was a nice a nice balance of just enough to terrify you but not going over the top as some of these new shows this episode you mean yeah did you feel it was a bit over the top or no i think it was a definite step into a genre as every episode this season has been very much they, so. they didn't half uh measure it they went full aliens on us but i agree with you it didn't stop being star trek Mm. And as someone who doesn't watch Star Trek for the horror, I wasn't turned off by it. And I will say, like, Star Trek has gone too far at least once in my mind. We're not here to talk about horror this week, but I'll say Star Trek The Next Generation, Conspiracy, the one with the little bugs that that crawl into people's mouths and have a tail sticking out of people's necks. Yes. That one, true gross-out gore fest at the end. It felt like they went too far in that one. Right. This one, not so much. Yes, we'll do a bit of a, a rundown of the episode. So the, uh, the Enterprise is getting a distress signal on a planet that, of course, is buffeted by storms, and so there's no way of getting a clear signal in and out. An away team is sent, whereas the Enterprise and number one are sent off to this vitally important mission to hand over supplies and equipment and all that type of stuff at space station k7 famous for its tribbles that's right that's right but those trials and tribulations are for another time <laughs> they are for another time so the away team arrive and as soon as they get their things go bad and we find mm. out that we are maybe in the presence of the previously mentioned and not seen gone yes 
Second episode in a row that was largely played out on redressed sets of the Enterprise as we know it. So yes. They're getting good value for money on those sets. So yeah, gone are the uh, plastic vines from Bunnings and Hello <laughs> Falling Beams and Sparks and Flickering Lights. It looked great, I thought. It was very creepy. Even a number of scenes in the sick bay, obviously, while we were diagnosing people who had, as it turns out, gorn eggs in them. But even in that sick bay, where we had spent a lot of time the week before as well, it had a mood that was different. Very much so. Very much so. We knew as soon as the threat became present that this was the genre that they were leaning into and they were leaning into heavily. We get to meet a very small number of survivors. And, two. And, yeah, two. And only one of them survives to the end of the episode. It's something I wanted to bring up because they've been quite calculated following the mm. Steven Spielberg Jaws method of as little of the beast you show the better so the imagination mm. can carry away. But they went all in and we actually get to see this new interpretation of the Gorn as opposed to from the original series episode, lumbering around in the desert and throwing paper mache rocks at each other and a lot of sweaty hugging and embracing. No judgment here. The moment I saw the full-sized Gorn land in engineering and hiss at our two main characters, my first thought was, Captain Kirk double fist punched that? Yes. Yeah, apparently. <laughs> apparently it, apparently he did. He uh, drop kicked one of those in the chest? Look, yeah. And he lived to tell the tale. But yeah, I was there going, how is it going to be realized? Is it going to be through the new art of CGI or will there be yep. any element of practicality? And especially the unnamed creature who was one of the survivors was fully practical animatronic. I loved that character. Incredible. The moment I saw him, I was like, oh, Star Trek can do this now. Ah, oh, I loved it. The fact that it was it was completely alien, but felt completely real. Um, and beautiful motion, beautiful animatronics, yeah. beautiful puppetry work. But the Gorn were relegated to being pure CGI. The babies and at least the teenager Gorn were puppets and the CGI was used to eliminate the puppeteers. Okay. So yeah, the little white ones scurrying around, yeah, rubber puppets with a stick in the back and everything. And yeah, the CGI was to remove the performers. Right. Okay. I got yeah, I got a sense like some of the close-up quick shots of the Gorn like roaring yeah. and stuff like that seemed a bit... The big one felt CGI to yeah. me, for sure. Yeah. Anyway, that big blue guy, very next scene, as soon as he started heavy breathing, I was like, okay, we're not going to see much more of this guy. <laughs> it's, look, we hardly knew you. And that's a good segue. We had the red shirt dilemma for the first time, Kevin. Really, in this season, we had, we had real loss yes. from characters that we haven't really, well, at all, seen before. Yes. So in the good old days of the original Star Trek series, whenever there was an away team, whichever schmuck joined the lead actors on the mission, you could clearly tell they're not going to be sticking around because we need to show the element of threat. They are going to be sacrificed. And it's been interesting to see that's a whole other broader topic about how Star Trek play that out. But there was a nice, I'd say an, a noble attempt to fill in as much of a backstory or at least connection with uh, yes. this cannon fodder in a short amount of time as possible. We had Cadet Chia finish her placement on the Enterprise and Ensign Duke promoted to lieutenant in one of the first scenes of the episode. That's and right. Following our conversation last week, I was sitting there going, ha, take that, Harry Kim. <laughs> if only Duke took a clarinet with him, I think he would have been yeah. fine. <laughs> 
cold weather and some really cool jazz. <laughs> but uh, later in the episode, I thought Harry Kim gets the last laugh. Yes, she does. He always gets the last laugh. Damn you, Kim! <laughs> so, um, two like disposable red shirts, and I think both of them there to distract us from the third loss this episode. The big one. Spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't, but if you're yeah. tuning in here and you haven't seen the episode, Tough welcome. Luck. Yeah. Yeah. After our big conversation on him in episode zero, Hamer's gone like that. Yes. He's gone. And in hindsight, should have seen it coming. With the spray the moment, or the, even before? Even the spray. They, he got hit by the spray and I was like, oh, that's some eggs. That's <laughs> some eggs. Yeah. We're going to have to deal with that. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't like all credit to them. It wasn't until he was standing in the cargo bay and all the problems in the episode had been resolved and he turned to camera and it was just a little too lingery that I thought, uh-oh, uh, this guy's going. And immediately, like my life flashing before my eyes, but it was his life flashing before my eyes, all the clues leading up to this point that he was headed for this fate mm -hmm. replayed. And I realized I had ignored them. And I blamed myself for ignoring them. You got comfortable, I, hadn't you? You got completely yeah. comfortable with the Star Trek format. And they pulled the rug under us and did what modern shows have been doing. And it's it, modern writers have had to get a bit clever because we kind of got used to the format with shows like Game of Thrones or stuff like that who broke the mold of these are the regular characters you think are going to stay and they kill them off. But you can see the pattern in the episode mm that they get a longer monologue than they normally yeah. would. And then mm -hmm. laid up, Naha, that's where they go. But they covered it all If anything up. ever happens to me, I want to be remembered for this. Exactly. Let me tell you a little <laughs> bit about my past that I've never brought up before, but I'll bring it up now. And we had that speech several episodes before um, with Uhura. Uhura. And he said, we believe that you only die once your purpose in life is completed. And my purpose is to fix things. And I remember at the time when he said that, I said in my mind to him, <laughs> you've got more things to fix. Don't you go nowhere. I think it was the, the body swap episode where we didn't have any of Hamer at all. Or there was an episode or two mm. where he wasn't Yeah, here. there were a couple. And, yeah, and he was sorely missed. I was actually there going, I'm actually missing his presence here. Even the very first episode, we are introduced to the entire cast. They go on this whole adventure. And then in, a, in the very last clip of the episode, Hamer beams on board and has no lines. That's he right. appears. It gives more import to his appearance last episode yeah. where clearly the actor was just having an absolute ball with Ugh. the role and playing flipping around. open the communicator and saying abracadabra there is no like in one moment mm -hmm. that character will be remembered through all the star trek history that is the moment they made sure we fell in love with him before <laughs> they break our hearts yeah a very experienced stage actor who works with the visually impaired theater in Toronto, I believe. Mm. So yeah, again, inclusiveness isn't a dirty word, people. We would never have found an actor of that quality if we didn't open up to all types of people to be involved in the beautiful utopian world that is Star Trek. So in the moment when we lost him, I felt, oh gosh, this was inevitable. It was planned. And I willingly blinded myself to that <laughs> fact, even though all the clues were there. So I felt a mix of betrayal, but also self-blame. How did you feel? I was about to discuss with you what level of the stages of grief did you go through quicker than others? Because you put the blame on yourself, did that mean you got to acceptance quicker? 
or yeah. Did, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I was ready to come to you this week and go, forget this podcast. I am out. <laughs> if we all stop watching, they'll be forced to bring him back. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So if we spoke earlier, you would have been in the denial stage of yes, it's Star yeah, Trek. He can right. come back. If Spock comes back, it's fine. Even Tashar came back in some way, <laughs> shape or form. Yeah. They brought back Denise Crosby for God's sake. They could bring back yeah. Hamer. How are you? I, I didn't, I wasn't as self-conscious of you as being able to pick it earlier. And I mm. should have seen the moments because earlier in that episode, they returned Uhura and Hamer yeah. to the point in purpose in life. But yeah, because it was a slow, it wasn't a sudden type of thing. He helped us with the acceptance as well and taking it through yeah. with everybody. And it was a very well shot, dignified, you know, he was very much Scott of the Antarctic. I'm just going out for a walk or maybe sometime. <laughs> which I found a very perfectly beautiful, and especially, and there was hints, like he was talking about this, everyone was hating the planet because it was cold and icy, yeah. and he loved it. Just it like Andoria. Just like Andoria. And oh, yeah. normally the shot of someone falling off a great height can't really be made to look that dramatic yes. or beautiful or could be done too over the top. Yeah, having that distance and how it was all done was very good. So I was, I was taken through the grief process with Hamo. So I was... Not ready to let him go, but I was going, this has happened now. So my acceptance was not completely resolved, but I was seeing where, where they were going. Yeah. When we compared notes, this death of a major character is the thing that we seized on and wanted to discuss. Why don't you go first? Where did this take you in Star Trek canon? It took me because I was trying to think about how it all fits in and how Star Trek deals with death, especially because I look at other franchises that I am into, whether it be Doctor Who or Star Wars, and how they deal with the loss of important characters in the series. And I've always found a bit of an emotional disconnect, but through the course of looking at all these prominent deaths, I've come up across two that really stood out for me. And so I'll start with one. And first one is, I'll go back in chronological time. I didn't really get affected by the loss of Spock in Star Trek 2 because I was coming in I didn't see <laughs> you cold hearted I know but I, but I didn't see Star Trek 2 until uh... after my first Star Trek movie was The Voyage Home so oh, okay. I, so, so you knew he was coming back. I knew he was coming back and he was going through the yeah. whole process of remembering his human and Vulcan side so all that I saw so when I went back to see it it was moving but I went he's got this but the one thing that really got is in Star Trek, the search for Spock is the death of David. That really upset me as a young fan and it angered me so much so that I don't watch Star Trek three because it's such, it's such a brutal, sad, horrible death. It's a struggle. Yeah. It's a battle. It's with a knife. Mm. It's brutal and it's awkward mm. and it's, there's nothing heroic about it. He's doing a heroic thing and he's just left there. It's played for shock. The point of it is the effect it has on Kirk. It robs David of a story. Oh, it takes away so much, especially with Star Trek two, that beautiful development of their relationship and dealing with yeah. Kirk's mortality. And For those who might be, not be that versed in this part of Star Trek canon, this is David Marcus, Kirk's son that we're talking about. That he didn't really know about. Yeah, his estranged son that he had with Dr. Carol Marcus, mm. who was the head of the Genesis Project. And in Star Trek two, 
David and Carol, mother and son, are working on the Genesis planet to terraform a planet with a single torpedo that rebuilds the planet's atmosphere and biome. And at the um, end of the episode where Spock sacrifices himself, his body is sent to that Genesis planet to hopefully to have a rebirth in some way. And yeah. in Star Trek three, David is left to supervise how the planet is going and he gets caught up in finding Spock's body who is growing again from a baby up to the fully grown Spock. They give us Spock back and they take David away. They give us Spock, we get Leonard Nimoy, but we lose David who we're only just getting to know. The Klingons are there and they take him out in a most brutal fashion. And they carry mm. on with this. It's done beautifully in Star Trek six and how they they incorporate the prejudice of Kirk about the loss of his son, and it's yeah. done beautifully. But it reveals David ultimately to be a plot device for yes. Kirk's story. Yes, as opposed to what I wanted to see was this beautiful young man, a wonderful character who was discovering his father, finding out he hates his father, but then loves his father, and finding his own bravery because he's just a scientist, but he's put into this appalling, violent situation. It's, yeah, I felt this beautiful character was taken away from us and we were robbed of his story, like you said. And that really angers me. There's a lot of that in Hemmer's death this week where he is revealed to be a plot device for Uhura's development. Yes, so that she can decide that she wants to stay on the ship that she we know she's going to be on. She could have figured that out herself. An Andorian or an Anar didn't need to die the, for her to figure that they out. They could have carried on that figuring out together, having a drink exactly. every week. So, exactly. so that's mine. So the death of David is one that still affects me and that I don't watch Star Trek three, no matter how much Christopher Lloyd and John Larroquette <laughs> as Klingons may be appealing. Yeah. So what's, uh, what's one of your most powerful and influential? Gosh, I, just because you took us back to the movies, mm -hmm. uh, and I am now in that mindset, you reminded me of just one film before Captain Decker, who is introduced at the start of Star Trek The Motion Picture as the new captain oh. of the Enterprise. And the first 50 minutes of that movie are Captain Kirk deciding he's going to take the ship back, going on a, a leisurely shuttlecraft tour around every angle of it and coming on board and then breaking. Yeah, that tour takes up about half an hour of that 50 yeah, minutes. That's yeah. right. <laughs> <laughs> and even longer. Arguably the, the best part of that film. Yes. He comes on board and he gives the bad news to Decker. She gave her back to me, Will. I'm the captain now. Admiral Kirk takes, <laughs> takes over control of the Enterprise. And Decker is, is relegated to uh, executive officer and by the end of the movie is killed off. And goes off with his former lover? Yes. Well, we don't at know. least an assimilated amalgam of Ilea and V'ger. She's another character that's gone before her time in this movie, actually. But yes, she and Decker go off into the sparkly sunset at the end. But mind you, his hair looks great in that final profile oh, shot. It's all yeah, the big all and twinkles, all twinkles. Yeah. Let's compare and contrast because I feel like I don't mourn the loss of Will Decker as much as I do David Marcus. No, well... And is it just that he's a less fleshed out or charismatic character? He's not... Yeah, it's not that familial connection. Like, he is friend, but a little bit competition for Kirk. 
And we don't know that much. And even when they introduce Illyria and they had something, but we don't know and they're not giving it that. Mm. So we have to fill in the blanks. And then at the end, they're gone anyway. And you go, eh. They do so much with David and Kirk and Carol yeah. and that dynamic. And just at the end, when David says, I'm proud to be your son, you go, yeah, that is the moment where Kirk's been dealing with, you know, he feels so old all the way through. That helps him feel yeah. young again. Whereas mm. with, yeah, Decker, we, even within the first 15 minutes, he's saying, I'm in charge now. Oh, now I'm not. And that makes you just go, you're not going to be sticking around. He's more than a red shirt, though. He's not just there to die. He's Very not much. the cannon fodder. I, I think the difference for me is that his death is the end of his story. Yes. It's maybe not the story he thought he was going to have at the start of the movie as the new captain of the Enterprise, but it is a... Uh, it is the end of an arc. As much as that particular film can manage a satisfying character arc, <laughs> it's there a little bit. Yes, uh, the word satisfying I, I, doesn't really associate yeah. with the motion picture. But there is that case of, yeah, you go, yeah, there's not many places for Decker to go. And this seems like yeah. a poetic place as any to have him with the person that he was connected with who's actually just been taken over by Vija. Just he accepts his fate. Did you say you had a second one you wanted to reflect on? Yeah. This is another one that got me very angry. You'll probably hear a bit more about this in the uh, special features. So as I said, I got into the motion pictures, the original motion pictures first. And this was around about the time where Next Gen was happening. And I was excited. I got caught up in the Next Gen excitement. It was being shown on Channel 9 when I was a kid here. And I got caught up in it. And a character that immediately drew me in straight away, who was unlike anything previously seen in Star Trek before was Tasha Yar. I really love Tasha Yar. I'd seen Denise Crosby in a couple of other TV projects and I saw her in later on in Pet Cemetery, but how it was shown in Australia, it was all wibbly wobbly timey-wimey, sorry, different franchise. But ah. I liked that she was a street kid. She had this really dark, gritty yeah. background. She was in gangs and, and all this type of stuff and really going with some more adult concepts of veering on prostitution and yeah. sex trafficking and all that type of stuff. So much of that revealed in a single vignette in Where No Man Has Gone Before. Yes. Or, or I forget what the title is. Is it Where No Man or Where No One, that episode? I'm not sure. I'll have to look it up. Yeah. But that one where they're hallucinating because they're in a weird nebula. That's right. Yes. Um, yes. And she flashes back yeah. to where she was. And she's a great actress. Denise Crosby and I love Tasha's story I love that she was head of security and me in my very old school background raised with men do these roles and women do these roles it was revolutionary a woman in charge of security Whoa. opened my little mind and I'm glad that it's a lot wider and bigger than it was back then it's where no one has gone before where no man has gone before of course is a different episode that was the second or actual pilot of the original series there you go but yes the sudden tragic and almost inconsequential death of yar near the end of season mm. one really shook me and angered me yes and yes. to be perfectly honest it really pissed me off to the point where i just i stopped watching I stopped watching yeah. because of that. This is such a great character and such a great presence. And no matter how many people, the writers or the production team talk about fitting Tasha in and because Wolf was taking that role that she didn't really fit or Denise Crosby talking about she's getting the cold feet or was feeling like she wanted to leave. I thought it was a bit of a, a misstep and I really missed having her a part of the show and I didn't really want to 
envisioned a show without her. And I've missed out on a lot of great Star Trek because of that. And I found my feet again with D Space Nine, but there was that massive yeah. gap that Tasha left and especially how inconsequential in many ways. It just happened out of nowhere and it still leaves a, an empty place in my heart of, again, lost potential of where Yah could have gone. Yeah, you've reminded me of the anger I felt in that moment as well. I think her speech in hologram form at her own funeral at the end of the episode, it saved it just a little for mm. me, but rewind the tape 15 minutes and like they're pronouncing her dead in sickbay. I too was like, what? <laughs> this is not what I signed up for. Yeah. This is not the Star Trek I want. So yeah, I could totally imagine that. These days, I find it so hard to see that death without knowing the behind-the-scenes story that objectively yeah. she asked out of her contract. Yes. She opted out of the show. And if an actor is not having a good time, it's very hard for me to begrudge the death of that character of course. in hindsight. But you're right. At the time, it was outrageous. Yeah. Especially that first season, everyone was a bit unsure and like Daryl Patrick Stewart wasn't sure what he was doing and he was yeah. struggling to find his place. Oh, everyone was bumping up against the scenery in that first season. Yeah, for sure. Exactly. That's why I have a lot more affection for Kira Norris in Deep Space Nine because she's very much like the spiritual partner of Tasha Yar. Right. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I could see that for sure. Mm. Of course, the other thing you missed out on by opting out was the uh, triumphant return of Denise Crosby as Tasha Yar in yesterday's Enterprise, one of the most memorable episodes of that entire series. Mm -hmm. And then that character going off into a wormhole and having a half Romulan baby, Sila, who comes back and is like effectively evil Tasha Yar. Evil Tasha Yar with the evil Tasha Yar bowl haircut. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing more evil than a diagonal diamond shaped haircut. So that model of a regrettable death resulting in a triumphant return that almost justifies the death is a model I want to hold up against Dr. Culber in Star Trek Discovery. Hugh Culber, whose neck is snapped by uh, yes. Ash Tyler, who's wrestling with his Klingon personality. He's had the ultimate plastic surgery to look like a human. <laughs> In a moment of split personality conflict, he snaps the neck of his own doctor, Hugh Culber, who collapses to the floor in full sight of his lover, who is unable to help because he's in a, in a coma. That's right. And it is kind of tragic, but really unsatisfying. Very much so. Very much so. I was at that point where I'm, yeah, Discovery was a hard slog for me in those early seasons and still in some ways. And uh, instead of being this moment, oh my gosh, this is really happening. I'm going, oh, really? Is this what we're, okay. Yes. I guess. And it happened and like, it was the shocking end of the episode. Yes. And you're like, Okay, no. I hope that pays off in some interesting way next week. I'm going to be <laughs> back to see what the heck you think you're doing, because it better be good. But in reality, you got to wait a couple more weeks, a lot more weeks. The fan outcry was immediate, not just because the character was beloved, the couple was beloved. Very by fans. much so. 
this played into the bury your gaze trope that you would imagine this team behind this show would be conscious of. Yeah. And yet, by all appearances, it was literally, what can we do to make this evil character seem more evil? We're going to sacrifice a character that we had no particular plans for, is yeah. my read of it. Yeah, and it doesn't seem like the messy way to get him back that's mm. clearly convoluted up the wazoo i had to look it up on memory alpha to figure out the rationale or to remember the rationale i watched it <laughs> wanting i watched it wanting the character to come back in a satisfying way leaning for it and i still cannot tell you what exactly happened according to memory alpha stamets paul stamets cradling him in sick bay at a moment of being connected to the mycelial network, That's right. inadvertently pulls Culber's essence, quote unquote, mm. into the mycelial network, Love a good where he becomes essence. a foreign entity who is hunted by the natives of that environment until sometime the following season, the discovery completely miraculously mm -hmm. happens upon him in an unrelated foray into that realm. And then we have and, to go through the weeks him. of PTSD and not connecting yeah. with Stannis yeah. and then reconnecting with him. And then later in season two, they become a couple again. And in season three, yes. they have that solid, almost parental relationship with the trilogy. Yeah. So, so talk it like sum it up for me. You Oh god, really? <laughs> you you started by calling this the red shirt problem that Star Trek has. Describe that problem to me and how does it intersect with these characters? It's because its basis is that episodic nature. No real shows apart from D Space Nine have really embraced because at that time overarching story narratives was quite rare within the prime yeah. time television circuit. Deep Space Nine, famous for blazing the trail blazing of serialized the trail. fiction on TV. And you yeah. see, they're the real pioneers of that, especially they were of that era where Twin Peaks was experimenting with that and Deep Space Nine was experimenting. The early stages of stuff we mm. take for granted now with overarching stories and all that type of stuff. So Star Trek was still very much a slave to that episodic nature that they had in the 60s. Your lead characters are narratively invulnerable, but to show a level of threat, you need to have a loss. And so they're bringing in these characters one at a time with no introduction. And when you move into trying to break the mold of the format, like they tried to do with Deep Space Nine, there was that ability to introduce characters that you would see over a couple of episodes. And especially because like we talked about in episode zero, you'd have more episodes as opposed to just nine episodes a season, you'd have 24, 26. Whereas with yeah. this, they wanted to show the threat straight away, but they're going, all we've really introduced is our main characters. And we don't really want to kill off all of them except Hamer at the end. So we've got yeah. to quickly spend a bit of time building up that love and heart for our two red shirts who have been promoted, but they're going to mm. be um, killed off. It was like with Voyager. Voyager set up this process of you are nearly a hundred years away from home. Mm. You All you have are the supplies you have and the crew you have. So that set up this bold idea of you could, if you want to, set up the importance of when you lose your first victim, when you mm. lose your first crew member, the power yeah. of that. And sadly, Voyager never really followed that process. They, when they lost their first crewmate, it was an yeah. episode where Bellano was 
captured and she was being experimented on and this other character was as well and his parts of his body were being used by the guys who were diseased yeah. it was just yeah, treated yeah. it was just treated as another you know just as if it was an episodic series as opposed to this is a character we've met this is a character we've known or the power of this is one of our crew is gone and We've gone, only yeah. got a finite supply of them. I think what in this conversation, what I've discovered is the importance of it feeling like the end of a character's story. Yes. There are the true red shirts in Star Trek. They are the one episode people that are just there to be sacrificed to the plot mm. of that episode. And you only get to know them well enough as is necessary to acknowledge that there is a loss that the characters you actually care about will feel. Then there's the characters who go on a bigger journey that ends in their death. And, and you mentioned Spock early on. By the time Spock died, it did feel like this was his final frontier. This was the last unexplored thing to do with that character. Yes. And so it felt satisfying and earned. But the middle bit that Star Trek can fall prey to is killing off a character for shock value that the show doesn't value as much as the audience values. Yeah, and it doesn't take that time to deal with the emotional reality of yeah. what that loss means. It's I know we're talking about you know, a science fiction show set hundreds of years in the future, but it's also following the format of, okay, this is episodic. We've got a whole new adventure next week and we need to almost reset. So we can't yeah. really have that lingering nature. It's come in a lot more now with thanks to Deep Space Nine, and they have elements of that returning into the show. So it returns back to past events and how that has affected mm. the character as they go along, but it's taken quite some time to, to get there. Yeah. But it's more of an exception as opposed to the rule. Bringing it back to Hammer, mm. I think the intent was there to do a good Star Trek death, a Star Trek death where we met a character and their story... Its natural earned conclusion was they, that Hammer sacrifices himself for the away team, having made the difference in the world that he was there to make. Definitely. And I think that was the intent. And I think the failure, if there is one, is that they did their work a little too well. They made us fall in love with him and want more for that character than for him just to exist to progress another character's story. The problem is they could think of too much to do with them and they had already committed to killing them. Yeah, and we are also living within the world of strange new worlds. We're in this interesting ground of we know where we're going and we know what the yeah. end point is, but we've mm. come in a little bit later. So we don't know, are we three or four years away from Kirk taking over? So a part of us is they're going, are they moving ahead too quickly? So we're not really yeah. enjoying the time with the cast that we have. We're now with Laana moving off as well. She'll be back. Yes. Yeah. Not all the characters are going to stick around. We know who sticks yeah. around, who doesn't, but we at least want to have more than just eight episodes with them before they go. I need to leave now because <laughs> I've got something important to do over there. Yeah. Yeah. Deaths in Star Trek. What, uh, what a tangled web. Yeah. yeah. Let's uh, let's talk about for those who are interested. Here ends here ends your discussion of actual Star Trek canon as relates to all those who wander. Yes. So yeah, come back next week. We'll talk about the grand finale. It'll be awesome. It'll be wonderful. If you want to stick around, get we'll get a little bit more personal. 
Yeah. You want me to go first? Yes, please start us off, Kevin. Cool, cool. So Star Trek for me was, I suppose it would be the first grown-up TV show I watched in my life. Nice. I think my parents recognized me as the budding computer nerd and technologist that I was destined to be. Just about the same year they bought our first family PC and a, a manual for how to write programs for it, they also sat me down in front of this show called Star Trek that was well and truly in reruns at the time. <laughs> this would have been 1986-ish, like just barely before Next Generation came on TV. Now, had but... you heard anything of Star Trek before there? Because the movies were out at this time. Had you heard anything about it? No, nothing. Mm. I was introduced to Star Trek through the reruns on TV. Right. So that was your and, pure uh, introduction. It wasn't even yeah. it wasn't even a part of the periphery of your pop culture knowledge. No, but it came fast because in those days Star Trek was airing 5 nights a week at 7 p.m. every weeknight. It was yeah. in full reruns phase at that point. Go syndication. So, yeah, over the course of a year I probably watched most of Star Trek as it existed at that time in 3 seasons of the original mm. series. And so the big milestones I remember are I think at some point I watched Star Trek IV on VHS. Yeah. I watched the home video release of Star Trek IV The Voyage Home and went, whoa, Star Trek can be this good mm -hmm. and funny. And then Star Trek V came out in theaters and that was my first opportunity to go along and see a Star Trek movie first run in cinemas. I'm sorry for your loss. I bought the pin in the lobby and I convinced myself that was a great movie, <laughs> damn it. It took longer than it does in this internet age for the pronouncement of the world to land on me about that movie yeah. and for me to realize in hindsight it wasn't very good. <laughs> but I was all about the marshmallows and the jet boots for a while, but... Then Star Trek The Next Generation premiered in 1987, and I got to watch new episodes of Star Trek. I still remember the teaser TV commercials that came out in the months and weeks before its premiere and feeling that sense of, are they going to break Star Trek? Are they going to do it wrong? Hang on, the red and the yellow uniforms have swapped. They have no idea what they're doing. And, and the captain's a bald guy and he's got a British <laughs> accent? What is yeah. this upside-down mirror universe? But just like Star Trek V, I think season one of Next Generation, I was there for the ride and the <laughs> novelty of it was enough to carry me through until it got good. And since that premiere episode of since the encounter at Farpoint appeared on my screen I have watched every new episode of Star Trek as early as I can after it comes out there's a while there where I was I was living in Australia at a time where Star Trek wasn't on TV and my friends in Canada were having to send me tapes that they had recorded for me but apart from that dark time I've been a day one viewer of Star Trek my entire adult life and what is it about Star Trek that... I'm glad you asked. What is it specifically? Because each franchise, each bit of, whether it be a novel or a TV show or a movie, has something that draws you there. But what is it specifically about Star Trek that makes you want to come back? I think what originally attracted me to it was its flying spaceships. And that's what I was building out of Legos in my family basement growing up. But what has kept me there as an increasingly devoted fan over all these decades has been the hopeful vision of the future. The idea that it's all going to work out mm. for the best, that <laughs> whatever mess is going on in the world right now is all in service 
of a better future that we need to learn the hard lessons in order to build that together. And Star Trek doesn't always wear that on its sleeve, but when it does, it is the Star Trek I most live for. Amen. Amen. Yeah. How about you? Yeah. Like I was saying earlier in the episode, I was introduced to Star Trek by my mum, and yeah, mum used to talk about Star Trek and how she'd watched it and all that type of stuff. And so the first one I remember watching in full, and we taped it off the TV illegally, which you weren't meant to do, but everyone did it, was Star Trek Four, And it was just for me, because I'd grown up with Star Wars. And so watching this, it was my interpretation of science fiction could be many different things. And so Star Trek is in no way like Star Wars. So it's a different approach. And I was really drawn in by concepts of they go back in time and they talk about the fact that, oh, what, you don't have money in the future? We don't. And I'm there going, <laughs> that blew my mind. How does that work? How does that work? And yeah. so unlike the almost Western Seven Samurai feel of the Wild West of our Star Wars, Star Trek had structure and order and hope and people of all different backgrounds of species, different alien kind working together and unifying. And the characters really got me and I fell in love with old, weary Kirk. Mm. So I didn't see any of the original with like young, vibrant 60s Shatner. So you got in through the movies. I got in through the movies. So I had to go back and watch the original series whenever it was like repeated when I was in high school. Mm. And I haven't seen all the original series, but I've seen as many episodes as I can. I've seen the key episodes that everyone talks about. But yeah, it was the movie. So Star Trek 4, I just watched over and over again because it was funny and it was about environmental issues and all that important stuff that really got me. Star Trek Six is another one that really stood out for me because it's such a good story. And it got me into mm. Shakespeare as well because Nimoy loved dropping his Shakespeare references. And so getting him and uh, Christopher Plummer quoting Shakespeare back and forth, that type of stuff really got me. And I didn't find my feet again with Star Trek until Deep Space Nine, where again, I fell in love with the characters. I was drawn into it because I, this is obscure, I really loved René Bourgeois. He was one of my, oh, right. He was one of my favorite actors as a kid. He brought you back. I loved him in Benson. He was uh, in a couple of telly movies called Fairy Tale Theatre, where he was in a guest star role and he was just hilarious and I loved him. And so whenever I saw him in movies, TV shows, I loved him as an actor. And um, I saw that he was uh, like a lead character in a Star Trek series and I went, this is amazing. They've earned another shot. Yeah. And, and, and what that, he's a shapeshifter and me as a young thespian, they're going, oh, it's the dream to transform into somebody else. <laughs> And how Star Trek Deep Space Nine created, like we talked about, those arcs and those storylines that would last seasons upon seasons. I fell in love with it. I loved the next-gen movies, so I didn't get into the next-gen TV show, but I loved First Contact. I remember going to see mm. First Contact in the cinema. That same excitement I felt for, because the first Star Trek film for me in the cinema was Undiscovered Country, and First Contact was that same excitement about it. I love Insurrection. I really love Insurrection. There's a lot of hate or dismissive notes for Star Trek Insurrection. I love Insurrection. It's a great I'm show. sure we will have an episode all about <laughs> shows and movies that objectively are bad that we love anyway. <laughs> and, that, <laughs> and what we determine as bad is going to be interesting. That's so yeah, Voyager was an important part of my ex's life. And so she took me through that. So watching all of Voyager was an important part for me that I never thought I'd get into it. 
but yeah, there's wow. certain things about it. I love Robert Picardo as a great character actor and mm. his work with Jerry Ryan and Kate Mulgrew as well inspired me a lot. So I've sort of like in a more combative place with Star Trek now because of the oversaturation and the quality is quite varied, but I like finding those new characters and that new emotional connection I can make with it. All right. Well, I'm sure there's there's so much more detail to our respective connections to Star Trek that we will uh, explore and reveal in the weeks to come. As Karen Carpenter says, we have only just begun. Mmm. The human adventure continues. <laughs>